0: This is a podcast from Three Triple R, one oh two point seven FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Welcome aboard the Starship Zero-G Science Fiction, Fantasy and Historical Radio for episode number 1196. Entitled, Wells, that was quite awesome. I'm Rob Jan and our co-pilot, Megan McHugh, is currently attending a conference in the Twilight Zone. Today's podcast title is Miffin Impotable. Once again, the Zero Jiggle is tearing at the genre entrails of the 67th Melbourne International Film Festival, now entering its first full week of programming after a weekend and a bit of cinematic craziness, (laughs) which is entirely correct in the case of Zero G, fossicking through the genre guts of the thing. Now, before we get to that... Patrick Stewart. Genre fan bases have longevity, especially when their fandom is based upon a still active franchise, which Star Trek certainly qualifies as being. Demographic appeal means that there's motive and opportunity to revisit beloved characters, most especially where the actor is still living, or more riskily by recasting the role, either with a lookalike mimic or with someone entirely new to it. Controversially, at present, stock footage or computer-generated imagery can also be used to replace the original actor with themselves. And that's a whole other can of film and digital worms to open some other day. Returning again to popular characters is certainly nothing new. Just ask Homer, Shakespeare or Sir Cohen and Doyle about Odysseus, Falstaff or Sherlock Holmes. But at the same time, there's a lot of new competing content out there and more than a few sequels and reboots spread across a much larger entertainment landscape the inclusion of at least one beloved character in what is essentially a sequel may not automatically be a guarantee of success beyond the initial nostalgic value of the reunion it also has to be good on its own continuing merits to have a chance to survive and thrive beyond a short-lived return to the next generation novelty show starring Patrick Stewart as Jean-Luc Picard. Beyond that is the thought that this would actually be the first substantial move forwards in the in-universe chronology sense since Star Trek Voyager wrapped up in 2001, along perhaps with some other... CBS all-access show concepts that they've been floating. I have to pause and process that for a moment because I'd grown so used to it that I almost had forgotten. Both the Enterprise and Discovery series are retro prequels as are the reboot movies all set in Star Trek's notional historical past even if the movies do take place in an alternate timeline. Previous future set time travel episodes and spin-off novels of Star Trek aside, I'm rather curious to see what's out there in the prime Star Trek universe nearly 20 years on. Um, I'm interested with catching up with still living individual characters too. Has Worf ended up in, the charge, in, in complete charge of the Klingons? Did Jake Sisko win a Nobel Prize for Literature? And just who is the captain of the Enterprise NCC-1701F or whatever other alphabet letter we're up to 20 years on? And did Riker and Troy have children and are they now grown up and serving in space as well? Are all the old Starfleet regulars admirals now and wearing enough brass that there's a whole staff just to keep all the medals and braid polished? Will the story reflect the possible glimpse of the future we saw in the Next Generation's finale story, All Good Things? Does Professor Data still hold the Lucasian chair in physics at Cambridge University, at least when his cat isn't sitting on it? Does John Luc Picard still grow grapes out in France and making his own Chateau Picard wine? Still, Sir Patrick Stewart returning to his old role... If anyone can make it not so-so and a Jean lucrative success, I reckon it's him. So looking forward to more news about that. I'm stoked for that. Maybe it's just going to be about him being on down on the uh, in the in the vineyards. <laughs> That'd be kind of cool when you think about it. All right. In last week's episode of Zero G, you may recall that we covered. ...various aspects of the 67th Melbourne International Film Festival... ...including the Flat Earth documentary Behind the Curve... ...the subtle Japanese parallel worlds movie Our House... ...the outrageous Jalo Horror Siege movie, Let the Corpses Tan, just the title alone makes me giggle, and the creepy but ultimately underwhelming in the reveal of its title, Beastie Murder Me Monster. So we're continuing on with some of the horror, and speaking of Let the Corpses Tan, I'll never get sick and tired of saying that, Uh, we've got another Jalo Horror movie coming up in the category of horror for the myth, uh, Helene Ketet and Bruno Forzani, the Belgian partners, husband and wife team, who've done Let the Corpses Tan and you'll also be able to see their film Amer, A-M-E-R, and uh, a whole bunch of short films that they've done as well as The Strange Colour of Your Body's Tears. These folks are not short of good titles, really. Okay, now... I've uh, told you about the, the shorts that they've got there last week, the collection of shorts, um, including a film called Catharsis, which is about uh, warping reality and time. Um, Jello, I used that uh, phrase before, it just means yellow basically. Um, uh, it's named. It's uh, Italian um, pulp, love, rather literally lurid uh, novels because they were coloured yellow and they were quite uh, spectacular in their content. Um, These were published uh, around World War II, that sort of era and um, essentially they're really uh, cheap, nasty pulp fiction but in this case it gave itself, it lent itself to a whole range of Italian classic horror movies. Think Mario Bava and uh, Dario Argento, that kind of thing. So whenever you talk about these similar sorts of movies we just call them Jalo. Now uh, okay so this is Catet um, and Forzani's collection of films and they also contributed an episode to the the uh, the ABCs of Death anthology movie. So I saw Amar, uh, actually I'm still in the process of uh, watching that come to think of it but I can tell you a little bit about it uh, from what I've seen. Um, it's essentially a coming of age story and it's set in the three different uh, eras of um, a woman's life when she's a young girl and when she's in her teens and then later on uh, played by different actresses obviously Um, when we jump into this film we bang straight in there it was a fairly low budget but that meant that they were really, really on the spot when it came to making the best use of the time and the budget that they had. So this is a very tightly edited film. Uh, at some stages in, within it they even have sequences that are basically just still pictures or almost subliminally short clips. Um, it starts with a kind of a family drama going on, uh, mother mother husband, uh, the young girl, there's been a family tragedy in the not too distant past involving the death of a grandfather, possibly a grandmother as well. I don't know if the uh, the latter is quite so recent. Um, There's very little dialogue in this film apart from when she's being yelled at by her mother to clean her room up and uh, stop leaving dead birds around the place which is uh, a bit of um, psycho-sexual imagery that they... ...throw in there. And this is all about the imagery, of this film. Uh, Especially the creepy figure in black... ...that continuously interferes in the girl's life. Uh, I thought this was actually so well done. By the time I'd uh, finished watching it... ...I thought, yeah, I actually like this one... um, ...better because of the tight editing... ...than Let the Corpses Tan... ...which is an entirely different film... ...really about uh, a heist that goes horrifically wrong and the robbers end up um, on the lamb and holding up in a set of very picturesque ruins <laughs> that uh, are inhabited or infested by an artist and uh, a writer to great effect. Now, this movie contains some pretty confronting scenes, I thought, if you happen to have had a relative die recently, so there is that as a sort of a trigger warning just... Um, ...just as a a little public service there. It's a horror movie, it's not going to play too well anyway... ...upon the sensibilities of anyone who's grieving or the bereaved. And that's uh, Amer, A-M-E-R. Now, this particular film um, uh, was so well done... ...in terms of having such a a low budget. Um, They tested everything out beforehand... ...so that they could just click through it very fast. and it only took 39 days to shoot. It looks actually like it, um, it cost a lot more than that and they put a lot more into it. I'm almost willing to be a bit generous to a film that uh, does a lot with very little. And it is quite creepy too in places. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, stacking Zs on Zero G on 3 FM.: And we're looking at... The horror load <laughs> in the Melbourne International Film Festival this year. Uh, zero G going through there and holding up the grisly bits to the light. <laughs> now this film. Oh the uh, there was one more um, Cate Fozani duo directed. Film called "The Strange Color of Your Body's Tears," which is worth the price of admission alone. Just that, um, just that title. Uh, this one's more of a locked room, well, kind of a mystery, and uh, they've actually used some of the the greats to um, soundtrack this one: Ennio Morricone, Alessandro, Alessandro. Droni and Riz Otolani. So we're right there in the Jallo. Lurid colours and sounds already before you even get into there. And it's actually a, a really great location for this one too. Uh, it's in a, an Art Nouveau apartment block that's like a, a bit of a maze, uh, as well chosen as uh, the hotel the in um, Stanley Kubrick. the Shining in its own way. <clears throat> now... Another film I saw was called Tyrell. (laughs) How do I approach this one? Um, Well, first off, the the title is um, mistaken pronunciation of the main character, Tyler, played by a guy called Jason Mitchell. Uh, He's a young African-American who has been taken to a birthday party in a house out in the woods. Now... Since Zero-G looked at this, you would expect it to be a horror film. It is directed by Sebastian Silva-Erazabal, a Chilean director, actor, screenwriter, painter and musician. And I remember him from doing a... He did a film in 2009 called The Maid, which we also um, interviewed back in... Sorry, not interviewed, uh, I wish... (laughs) Uh, ...reviewed back in the day from uh, myth also from called magic magic which i think I, I saw too but anyway tyrell stars this guy who goes out off the beaten track and you know that something's going to go wrong from the very start when he and his mate rock up in their car and they run out of petrol um, they're not too far from where they're going uh, and they're going to be picked up by their mates but I'd say give them a ring, but uh, a, a lady comes out um, from seemingly nowhere and says, oh, what's going on? And and they tell her that where they're bound and she asks too many questions and, you know, before you know it, well, I cannot actually spoil this film for you. Um, on the one hand, uh, it's contains a sort of a a really interestingly quite low-key existential horror for introverts who find themselves trapped at parties that go on for several days where they don't really fit in. Can you imagine that? Are you screaming in your little intro pod somewhere at the moment just at the very thought of that, digging your claws into the cat (laughs) and making the cat wonder, what the hell is going on? Daddy or mummy. All right. That's all I'm actually going to say about this film. Uh, it contains quite a few people who are exceptionally irritating. It's like a bro's keg party, basically. Um, look, if you watch this and you are peeved at the end of it, I uh, wouldn't blame you. I felt a certain amount of that too. Um, but... Looking back at the maid, I actually felt that the, the same sort of thing was running in that too, a very slow burn all the way through. Um, what can I, else can I mention without giving too much away? Uh, there is a, um, an actor, Reginald uh, Cathay who we've seen playing Dr. Franklin Storm in that terribly unfortunate 2015 Fantastic Four movie. Uh, He's been in a lot of other shows. And this was actually his final uh, movie because he passed away um, this year in February, Reginald Cafe, very distinctive face. He plays uh, the husband of the the lady who uh, confronts the characters at the start of the movie. It's actually a really irritating film. And again, as I said, I will not be... Surprised if you get to the end of this and you just go, oh. <laughs> anyway, um, there are lots of portents within the film, signs and portents, which we you will find very familiar as tropes from uh, the horror movie genre. This has been mentioned in the same breath as Get Out. I wouldn't myself. I took two breaths then. He may have heard the second one <laughs> but um, other people have said that and I think they're actually being quite mischievous saying that. Tyrell this is the movie directed by Sebastian Silva. All right, now just jumping out of the myth for a moment, Wellington Paranormal... Is on Tuesday nights on SBS Viceland. It's Taika Watiti and Jermaine Clements' New Zealand supernatural police procedural show. It's spun off from their vampire, swearwolf <laughs> mockumentary, What We Do in the Shadows, starring officers or constables Minogue and O'Leary and uh, their, their boss, who's um, Rather, Is it O'Leary or is it O'Neill? Oh, my, don't worry. One of those two. Uh, and their boss. And The boss is not particularly altogether there. He's uh, a conspiracy buff, a keen buff, <laughs> especially. Uh, he set up um, uh, a room in his uh, command. He's the uh, one of the sergeants at the station. Um it's his, basically it's his X-Files room which is a, a utility cubby that's accessible via a single-digit pin number lock-up bookcase <laughs> which he later upgrades rather embarrassingly, embarrassingly to a pretend voice print lock. The two episodes I've seen so far which are available on SBS On Demand, uh, the first one deals with demonic possession <laughs> which is, uh, yeah, a hoot and a half watching this thinking, um, you're too police... People are totally clueless in this. They have no idea. But that's the whole point of it. That's the the slow burn, somewhat Fred Daggy humour of the whole thing uh, as they just basically bumble their way through the, in, the entire episode. Uh, the second one involves alien plants which are abducting cows and replacing humans with doppelgangers. I love my job on Zerachie. How often do you get to say that on a Monday? Uh, <laughs> And the special effects are actually quite special too. And I did notice a small visual reference to the Nosferatu Peter ...from the mockumentary What We Do in the Shadows. So I was quite chuffed at that. Uh, I think one of my favourite moments... ...is when they're interrogating the possessed demon girl... ...and it all becomes a bit too much for the good cop. And as he backs off he sort of says uh, aside to his female partner... Um, this is all too much for me. Yeah. Can you do your bad cop? And he goes, right, and sets a cap and walks over and says to the possessed girl, stop that, it's a bit scary. And then walks away. <laughs> oh, dear. This is great stuff, uh, Wellington Paranormal. It's um, we've, when, you, when you actually have a lot of shows that are very supernatural-based, procedural-based on telly, and we've been through a lot of them, um a lot of them end up actually being quite funny um the incredibly long-legged supernatural series itself the eponymous supernatural of the winchester brothers that's always funny <laughs> they've pretty much just settled into this uh just send up a parody of um, some of the other s- stories as well but they still managed to get the drama in there this one is far more parody uh and i enjoyed it i just thought it's this great it's a Roughly half hour show and um, it's, it's perfectly pitched. It does remind me a little bit of, uh, what was that one? Um, was it Death Valley? Uh, it was uh, another uh, police procedural comedy send-up with paranormal elements. It's set in the USA but this one of course is New Zealand which is greatly to its benefit. <coughs> All right, now... We're going to move on to some of the other movies at the MIFF. There's a fashion section uh, where they're showcasing movies which have made a particular contribution to fashion and uh, costuming. For example, uh, Stanley Donnan's Funny Face with Audrey Hepburn and Morocco, Uh, that's one of the uh, Von Sternberg ones and um, Peter Weir contributes Picnic at Hanging Rock and George Kukor <laughs> has given us The Women. So I thought I'd pick one that I hadn't seen before or at least one that I hadn't seen for a very long time, uh, The Women and this one has Norma Shearer, Joan Fontaine, Rosalind Russell and Joan Crawford. Now this is... Um, an ensemble movie and it's called the women quite deliberately it's based upon a uh, a play and the idea was to have nothing but women in it and they pretty much adhere to that all the way through although they actually do have a male director so perhaps not as enlightened as you might think i also think the plot's a bit naff too but That's all right. Um, It was 1939 when they made this. I'm not going to go calling them out too much on it. Just note the fact and move on. Uh, The costumer in this was um, MGM's head designer, Adrian. Adrian. So the costumes of this are absolutely spectacular and there's even a costume parade in it, a fashion parade that's done in Technicolor. I'm not quite sure which um, print the myth is showing because I previewed this on uh, Filmstruck and in that one the um, the fashion parade in it, which lasts for 10 minutes, is actually um, done in Technicolor. I think the original one might have been still in black and white. I know that... um, Georgie Boy wanted uh, that to be excised from the final film, but the um, the suit said nah, and we want that in for the spectacle of having a Technicolor in 1939. So it's sort of coming, becoming the coming thing, as well as, of course, Adrian's costume designs in there look quite futuristic. It, uh, s- and in addition, the film is a really good example of how he used... ...costume design to pick out the individual characters... ...and show us their exact status, social situation and character... ...or lack thereof. It's a very catty movie and they highlight that right at the start... ...with uh, pictures of the actresses as they show up in the credits... ...also um, contrasted with pictures of animals... ...including big cats and little cats and all sorts of other barnyard creatures... Uh, It's a bit of a zoo in this film. Um, There's Marjorie Maine in it too, who some people may remember playing Ma Kettle in those old uh, Ma and Pa Kettle movies. She plays a role not unlike that as she's um, in charge, well, more or less, of a dude ranch near Reno where everyone ends up when divorce starts flying around as a concept kukor did the philadelphia story in 1940 gaslight adam's rib a star is born the 54 one and my fair lady in 64 as well as working continuously into the 1980s in uh, cinema and television and this particular film is a piece of its time Uh, it's basically about bored rich wives uh, who are trying to overcome the various difficulties in their lives that stem from marital infidelities. Uh, and because there are no actual men in the film, apart from maybe a few photos and so on, even the animals that I mentioned and the and pets that show up are actually female, they really tried to, uh, to push that angle in this. Because there are no men in it, um, I quite enjoyed seeing this other side of the world, even if it is kind of a clichéd plot from its time and it maybe maybe a little bit naff. Um, I think the, the costume that I thought stood out the most, there's one uh, during the fashion parade where there's a brooch that's um, cast from a human hand or sculpted up as one and on that is uh, a ring and the whole thing is used as an, a brooch to hold a, a costume together. That's pretty, ke- pretty clever. Anyway, this is... Uh, an older film, obviously, but it's been played at the MIF as part of their um, their fashion uh, stream. The Women, George Cukor, N1939. Uh, also included in the historical of films, uh, I thought I'd just mention um, Zama, which is by uh, Lucretia Martel. And this is a multinational film, although it's essentially a uh, Spanish-language film, Um and this is actually adapted from a 1956 Argentinian novel by Antonio de Benedetto. And this is actually the first film in nine years from Lucretia Martel. So you might want to get yourself to that one. And it's basically about a, a, a Spanish magistrate in the, 19th, in, the, sorry, in the 18th century in uh, South America and he's um, beginning to lose it in his uh, post there i um, like to see that one myself. Didn't, haven't had a chance to screen that one yet. All right, now, just wanting to mention that uh, it's not just the Melbourne International Film Festival that has film on screen in the genre in Melbourne at the moment. Uh, there's a, a, um, a Monash University event, nothing to do with the myth, uh, on Wednesday the 15th of August starting at 530 ...in uh, the uh, ground floor of Building F at Monash Uni in the Caulfield Campus. This localised event uh, was also dedicated to genre goodness. They've got this um, exhibition running at the moment by Robert Smithson... ...called Time Crystals, um, who was uh, born in 1938 and passed away in 1973. And a lot of his work included um, science fiction imagery and they're going to celebrate his science fiction fandom by screening two of the artist's favourite films, The Day the Earth Stood Still, the 1951 version, Robert Wise's great film, and X, the man with the X-ray eyes from 1963. Uh, and they're going to be introduced by um, science fiction enthusiast and visual artist Michael Vail... ...who's going to talk about the links between Smithson's practice and science fiction theory. Uh, quite reasonably priced, I thought, ten bucks. And I think that includes a, a hot dog or a taco, <laughs> something else as well. Um, so quite a worthwhile night. And apparently, following on our fashion-orientated uh, little riff before they've got a costume competition but you can find out more at um, the monash university website about this event a couple of science fiction films and a, an exhibition i think that's still running until september called time crystals hi my name's con igledon i'm the author of the dangerous book for boys and wolf of the plains and you're listening to zero g on three triple r we're talking about a documentary and this year I, I think some of the standout films for me, as they often actually have been in the past, uh, myth documentaries, so they sort of fall into our historical brief. Uh, the Eyes of Orson Welles, which is a documentary written and directed by Mark Cousins and it's absolutely chock full of pictures and sketches, uh, which is to say paintings and, uh, and also sketches by late great Orson Welles who's I mean, gone for 30 years. Now I should preface this that there actually was a BBC television um, series in uh, 1955 called Orson Wells Sketchbook and in each of these 15-minute uh, episodes um, Wells would comment on uh, different subjects and illustrate the episodes with his own sketches quite often. So... It's kind of been done before. Now, it all ba- it's all based around uh, more or less a box of um, Wells's sketches. Quite a large box, actually. So it reminds me of uh, what was that uh, documentary about Kubrick's boxes about his um, his special boxes of uh, film notes and. Um, paraphernalia about the making of different films that they did once. So uh, This is a box that was found at the University of Michigan, or perhaps not found or lost or anything, I don't know. <laughs> and in this documentary we find out that Orson Welles indeed was large and contained multitudes, as well as being a compulsive sketcher who documented everything as he went along, a very visual person. Um, and this is what this ...documentary forms a sort of a letter to Orson Welles... ...as spoken by Mark Cousins. Now he's the, um, the Irish film critic and documentarian... ...and director too... ...that we heard narrating the story of film, An Odyssey... ...which is that uh, mammoth 15 one-hour chaptered monolith... ...of a historical tale giving us everything about cinema over 900 minutes. I have to admit, when I was listening to him during the story of film, I kind of got a bit tired of his lilting Irish accent. Um, the tones began to put me to sleep as he rose and fall because it what did, didn't vary all that much. Um, at times I, I was into it and other times I just... Watching it late at night, I just couldn't handle it. But for some reason, listening to him here, I'm totally rebooted on it, and it's fine because his passion for Orson wells and his work really shows through. Now, wells died 30 years ago, so a lot has changed since then, which uh, Cousins does pick up on ably right at the front. And well, they go through the box looking at his uh, quill and inkwell drawings as well as um, pastels and other works uh, and analyse them not only for their artistic merits in themselves but in the links and the insights that they give into both Wells' character and the expression of that character in his movies and including ones which didn't get finished either. Uh There's a lot in this. I I thought this is probably one of the best documentaries about Wells that I've seen from an unusual angle and I learned a whole lot about this from watching the eyes of Orson Welles, including a lot about his uh, various marriages, uh, his daughter Beatrice who uh, appears in it and um, also his love for chivalry, his love of camera angles and sketching from below to make um a visual point that uh, either diminishes people when you're seeing it from above and there's so many different examples that they give from the films too within this which uh, is only logical he loved places and he loved the very act of visualizing things too and I, i've never really um, gotten into this side of him before they also do a uh, show some clips from television like him doing his Falstaff makeup on the Dean Martin show including that beloved nose putty that he also always seemed to have around. And one of his favourite lenses too It makes an appearance, an 18.5 lens, um, which made the world bulge, writing things regally or diminishing them depending upon the perspective of the uh, the character and the viewer. They also show um, a whole box of his, uh, a whole lot of his uh, animated, his Santa Claus Christmas cards, where um, he talks about how the... <laughs> the progression of these cards that he'd send out changed to become more dark and drunken as time went by. They actually animate those and there's a bit of animation in this too using, um, you know, the, the dodge of uh, showing the, the drawings being made so they sort of appear in strokes and then uh, are fleshed out over time. Um, I thought this was great. I love the fact that uh, he was a fan of um, Don Quixote and saw himself in a bit of a... Uh, A fashioner like that. In fact, there's a a short home movie that he did where um, he's dressed up as Sancho and his wife um, arrives on a vespa motorcycle and uh, he's um, uh, his uh, his knight and lord Don Quixote tries to save her. <laughs> from the beast, uh, amazing stuff. This the the eyes of awesome Wells. Highly recommended if you're in any way Wellesian and, and which of course is the reason why I entitled today's zero G episode Wells. That was quite awesome. Hello, this is Sean Tan, and you're listening to Three Triple R. Yeah, well. ...keeping the experiment alive here on Zero-G. As always, it's alive, it's alive, it's alive! <laughs> <laughs> ha. Okay, Rob Jan here and we're into the far end of Zero-G today... ...and we've been talking about Melbourne International Film Festival entries. And there's one more I want to mention just before we close out with a track... Uh, this is another documentary, and again, I've really enjoyed the doc- documentary section of the Myth a lot this year, as I always do, usually. Uh, and this one is called "People's Republic of Desire," and I'll talk. I'd like to talk about this one at more length next week, um, even if it has been played. But um, you'll see. We'll see how we go there. Uh, it's by ha- Hao Wu, and um, it's about the. Uh, the phenomena of online hosting of content and how the hosts become celebrity characters in themselves and can make small fortunes from having fans give them gifts and participating in international online competitions it's this whole big celebrity cult thing uh, that's very black mirrorish in its um, implications for the individuals involved and found it absolutely fascinating and it sort of felt to me like a very much uh, world of tomorrow today kind of thing for zero g to look at really nicely done uh, and actually quite scaring too people's republic of desire so check that one out now Also, you will probably know, but I'm mentioning it anyway, that uh, IMAX is going to screen 2001 A Space Odyssey in that format on their very, very big screen with their amazing sound system. And it's going to be presented in IMAX 4K Laser Digital 2001 A Space Odyssey. What a great double that would make with the new uh, Meg in 3D, the giant shark movie. (laughs) Oh, dear. Uh, I think that uh, orbiting space station will probably have to watch out for the giant shark leaping out of the water. Ah, well. Okay, now uh, that's it for Zero-G today. We are going to hand over to Joe Renatik with Astral Glamour. And thanks to the room of the viewers who preceded us. Uh, Thanks today to... Emma and Tiki from the Melbourne International Film Festival for helping us out with content for today's (laughs) MIF-focused. And it's all my fault. Focus, focus. Look at the 67th International Film Festival's genre guts for today. That's it for Zero G. Thanks a lot. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne